Welcome to Fruit Snacks, a weekday podcast that covers big ideas about the Christian worldview in a bite-sized format. Hey everyone, in this episode we're going to take a side route and we're going to talk a little bit more about Eden. I mentioned it in yesterday's episode that it was divine headquarters, even though all of creation could functionally be understood as God's temple. But I want to focus on an aspect of Eden that is often overlooked, and that is that according to scripture, Eden is both a garden and a mountain. Now, the garden aspect is something that we all, I think, know of and are comfortable with, but have you ever considered Eden to be a mountain when you conceive of it in your mind? Most of us don't. But there's a good reason for thinking of it that way. We get hints of this when we look at a couple different passages. In Ezekiel 28, which is describing the fall of the devil, we see in verses 12 through 17 that Eden is described as the garden of God, which is totally in line with how we conceive of it. But later on, the same place is referred to as the holy mountain of God. And so we have both a garden and a mountain describing Eden. In Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve, and by implication, Satan as well, are kicked out of the garden. But in Ezekiel 28, he is cast from the mountain. So what's up with this imagery? Why do we find references to God's abode, even in the Psalms, like your holy hill and things like that? This idea that where God lives is elevated, is high in elevation. Well, a lot of this has to do with the ancient Near Eastern concept of where deities lived and their abode. And so you have two, I won't say competing, but more complementary concepts that all had to do with what was the proper place for a god or, in other cultures, the gods to dwell. And this idea of a garden has everything to do with this concept of paradise, of abundance, and of surplus. Wherever the gods lived, the ancients reasoned, must always be full of more than enough. They must never want for anything Not like here, where we have to deal with famines and droughts and crops being destroyed and so on and so forth. Wherever deity dwells is perfect. It's a paradise. And so you get this lush garden imagery that is often associated with divine abodes. But what about mountains? Well, there are a couple other concepts that the ancients also associated with divine abode. And that is this idea of distance or remoteness, or otherness, both mountains and the sea and all these places which frankly were completely inhospitable to human life were often associated with places where God or the gods would live. And part of that had to do with these areas being unapproachable. We as humans just couldn't stroll into where God or the gods lived. That's just not a thing. And so there was the inaccessible nature of mountaintops. They weren't summited like we see today with 
climbing gear and oxygen tanks and so on and so forth. You couldn't go there. You would die. And so the remoteness of them and the otherness of them made them a easy way of describing the abode of the gods. We can't go there, but they can come to us. And so there's also this idea with mountains that in the ancient worldview, and we're going to get to this in the next several weeks, I hope, that they literally thought that the mountains held up the sky. And so if, as we quoted in our last episode about how the earth is God's footstool, which would mean that the heavens are actually where he is and where he dwells, if the mountains are in contact with the heavens if those are if they are sort of the the point of crossover between these two realms then that would be as close as a human could possibly get to heaven so those are some different ideas about why eden is described in both garden and mountain language because it fits completely within the ancient context but i want us to notice a key difference and that is in the genesis account And only in Genesis do we see that humans belong here in the divine abode and in God's presence by design. If you look at other ancient creation texts, what you see is that humans are either relegated to another place, they don't belong here, or they are not wanted. They're seen as below or beneath the deities. Only in Genesis do we see that this is where humans are designed to be in the direct presence of God. God wants us in his presence. He wants us to live with him and to make our abode with him. So to give an example, in other versions of ancient Near Eastern texts, like the story of Prometheus, he is a divine being who gives fire to humans. He takes something from the divine realm and he gives it to humans. And as a result, he is eternally punished because things from the divine realm in thinking don't properly belong to humans. We don't deserve it. We shouldn't have it, so on and so forth. But and I'll give a modern day example of this same kind of idea or concept. I don't know how many of you have seen the, the Disney movie Moana, but in it, the character of Maui is very much like a Prometheus character. He takes the heart of Tefiti and he gives it to humans in an attempt to, as he says, give them the power to create life itself. But what happens? He's punished and he is exiled for doing something like that. He shouldn't have done it is sort of the implication. That power doesn't rightly belong to people. Well, in Genesis, we see just the opposite, that the power to, to oversee life and to partner with the divine is the proper place for a human being. And so only in Genesis do we see that a human's proper place is alongside God. And that's not for any other reason besides the fact that God himself has decided that that's where he wants us. Only in the Hebrew concept of creation do we get such an elevated view of the worth and the value of a human being. And I think that's really special and it's worth pointing out.